0: Welcome to The Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. In this episode, I'm pleased to have back George Eney. George is the president of the Automobile Protection Association, which works its buns off to protect you, Canada, right across this country. And what's kind of nice about George is he investigates the auto industry. He knows lots about it, and he tells us the truth. So I'm always, always glad to have George back with us. George, welcome to The Driving Podcast. Thank you, Lorraine. You recently returned from the New York Auto Show and you had some interesting observations. Um, I was going to ask you before we spoke, I wanted you to have a crystal ball and tell me where we're going to be looking in the future. And before I even got to ask you, you were telling me all kinds of stuff. What were some of the things that made the biggest impressions on you that you recently saw? Um,
1: A lot of the new vehicle introductions, of course, the buzz is around electric. Now, uh, you wouldn't know from reading some of the columns and stuff that EVs are still only about one vehicle out of 15 or one vehicle out of, out of 20 being new vehicles being put on the road. So they're growing a lot, but the total share of the market is still very small. And um, the incentives from the government right now are probably not necessary, certainly not to the level that we have because the car makers, are unable to produce more electric vehicles than they are already. So there's a, there is partly the question of, are we getting the maximum bank for the buck by, by helping people buy a new car?
0: there's a lot of people that have always said um that incentives are my colleague david booth thinks they're absolutely bogus across the board for ev- for everything all the time um some people say they're needed to introduce new tech to people who are a little bit hesitant as you said it's being applied really unevenly in canada provinces have their own um programs that they use discontinue start again things like that but you hit on a really good note when you said there's no stock anyway right now. People are still lining up for them. Is this time for every level of government to look at pulling back, do you think?
1: Uh, they won't because everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. But uh, yes, uh, I think certainly in provinces like BC and Quebec, where in Quebec you get $12,000 in all when you buy any a new EV. And the consequence of that we've seen is that instead of buying like a Nissan Leaf or a Chevy Bolt, the public is now buying uh, Ionic 5 or uh, Tesla, much bigger vehicles. So it's, it's made them more affordable, but you're basically helping a reasonably well-off person buy an expensive car for an environmental purpose. And it's very expensive because you're also um, losing the tax revenue uh, on gasoline over the life of the vehicle. So that's in addition to the $12,000, probably another $1,000 a year for 15 years.
0: We're going to touch on that topic a little bit later when we talk about infrastructure, but you did mention the Volt and the the smaller EVs, the LEAF. And when this all started, the idea was to be more environmentally sound. And we watched that happening and silly, silly Lorraine thought, oh, we're finally going to start right sizing, buying the vehicles that we need instead of pulling our living rooms around with us. Instead in North America, all we've seen them do is electrify pickup trucks and SUVs. How did we get so backwards how did it get so upside down? I I don't understand. Shouldn't we be going to smaller, more environmentally sound things? Isn't that the whole point of electric?
1: It's nuts, Lorraine. And the public is talking out of both sides of its mouth or has a, like a really split personality. We talk green. We're really nervous when we read the news. I mean, not people of all ages are concerned about the climate. And yet when we go out to buy a vehicle, uh, we're upsizing in almost every segment anything small people are moving out of it and anything uh medium-sized people are moving into the next size up something larger and so the car makers who started with these like engineer projects like the leaf or the bolt these are conservative things designed to save on materials because batteries were heavy and expensive so you wanted as light a vehicle as you could to carry them around it turned out that's not what the public wanted to buy. What the public wants is something like a Tesla or an F-150 pickup that's electrified. This is a huge vehicle with tons of power and that takes tons of resources, even if it runs on electric.
0: About 15 years ago, I interviewed you. I don't know if you remember this or not. You probably you might. Um, and I asked you at the time, what, what do people want? What is it the buyers are looking for and what is it they want? And you laughed and you said, oh, well, they want fuel economy and they want safety features and they want to be environmentally friendly and, you know, they want good value for their buck. And I said, so what do they buy? And you said, it all comes down to price. Every single time it comes down to price and everything else can fly out the window if they can make the price work. Now you're saying, um, have we changed? Is it now they want the biggest thing they can possibly buy? Is that is there a shift from wanting you know, the cheapest thing to now wanting the biggest?
1: We had two very different experiences. Uh, 15 years ago was the 2008 recession and the collapse of the um, real estate market in the US. Uh, People stayed out of the car market. Uh, Sales were down by 25% for 2009. They were still weak in 2010. People were buying smaller vehicles and when they were buying larger vehicles, they were putting less equipment on it. This time around with the pandemic, government support came in more quickly. And the way it played itself out was different. People want to indulge themselves. We're seeing a completely different mindset. You wouldn't guess that it's the same public. And that's despite the fact that it's 12 years later and or 15 years later and we are even more aware now of climate-based issues than we were back then. And we have more choices. So back then with more limited choices, people were buying a smaller, more frugal vehicle. And today, I guess it tells us that the government support was so generous that we're still confident. You know, once we put in our pool and redid our decks, uh, we were buying a bigger car. I think.
0: I think there's a a two-pronged thing i'm not going to argue with you exactly but there's a lot of people that got government help that use it to pay their rent and food because i know a lot of them um but i think there's a lot of pent-up money from people who can just continued to make their salary but couldn't travel and couldn't spend it on anything because there wasn't any cars in the showroom so i think it's kind of a mix of the two things I oh just-
1: i want to be clear i'm not making saying that the money was wasted or the government shouldn't have helped people we believe in the security. I'm just saying, we were astonished at the APA. At, in, and, and it's not only that, of course, all the people in 2008 who were in their 40s or 50s, the boomers are now in their early 60s. And many of them use the pandemic as a reason for retiring, or at least thinking about retiring. These are people who are, you know, as a group, not every one of them, because not everybody is rich in their retirement, but are, are you know, are, had who relatively well-funded, I guess you could argue, well are relatively secure. And that's the people you're talking about who are, who are buying bigger vehicles.
0: I think sometimes there's a disconnect between the headlines and what's actually happening. And we've become less judicial in understanding that sometimes these screaming headlines aren't representing anything except a noisy minority. And it's I found that with cars. People are, the cost of cars is crazy. I think auto traders got uh, the average new car price right now is over 59,000, if I'm not mistaken. And that's, I'm, you know, kind of gobsmacked by that. That's horrifying. And yet people can't buy them fast enough. They're putting so much money into cars. And you and I have had endless discussions about the length of car loans.
1: Yes. And, you know, when we were having these conversations, uh, about 84 months, which is the most common new car term, or 96 months, which was the second most common in some years um interest rates were around three or four percent and and many manufacturers on a new car i'm saying we're offering zero even for 84 so you could really stretch out your payments with no hangover supposedly today those interest rates are running between six and eight percent and we thought that might see a dialing back that people will say well no i'm only going to go to 72 months or i'm going to put down a big down payment because i'm i'm not prepared to pay 30 or 40% of my outlay in um, interest. But in fact, that's not what's happening. We just got used to the longer payment and people seem to be still um, financing for the long terms.
0: So does that tell you that um, car purchases are still heavily weighted towards emotion?
1: Sure. All, a big purchase like that will always have a very strong emotional component. It's just that it's not the emotions that we thought people would be having. So it seems to be that uh, the concept of uh, cocooning or living at home or not being comfortable with public transit, the insecurity around contagion drove us to want to indulge ourselves and buy up somehow. Or there's something else going on. We're about to retire, I mean, I'm speaking for people in their 60s. And, uh, Thinking, you know, I worked all this time and now I I want to live the fruits while I still can. Whatever, but these are, it's an interesting phenomenon of up buying. In the past, the APA has castigated the industry for not building what people want. uh, For really, and certainly the domestic car makers almost having a level of scorn for the people buying their low-end cars because they made junk for years and didn't fix it when it was bad. Like think of Ford with the transmissions on their Focus and their... Fiesta, small cars, you know, if those were happening to owners of Lincolns or F-150s, they would have tried to do more to help people out than the screwy class action settlements that they negotiated. Uh, But today, that's not the case because the industry can rightly say we did try, at least with EVs. And even in the compact car segment, uh, don't blame us for leaving the segment you left first, Mr. or Mrs. Consumer.
0: I always have an issue with this. I don't know if it's chicken or an egg because I get into arguments. Of course I do. Um, with Um, I'm saying manufacturers are building these massive vehicles. Manufacturers are saying that's the only thing people want to buy. People say, well, that's all that's on the lots. That's why I'm buying them. And I look at ad and marketing departments who their job is to create the want and the need for these big trucks. So chicken and an egg, do you think whose responsibility is this to bring down the size of these vehicles? And we'll talk a little bit about the weight and the, oh, what's going to be happening on our roads is just so scary to me, electrifying these massive vehicles. That electric car weighs 9,000 pounds. If that comes in contact with anything, it's going to obliterate it. So whose responsibility is this? Is it always on the consumer? Is it always on the manufacturer? Where do we, where do we start pointing?
1: It's on the manufacturer to make the vehicle safe, but the consumer does have a role to play in in what gets made, unfortunately. And there are times when the consumer is given no choices and you can blame the industry for not coming up with a solution. But this time around, where the consumer has a choice, they're absolutely voting for those larger, heavier vehicles you mentioned. Um, And we are concerned that um, there will be an issue with um, uh, crash safety, as it is in the U.S., fatality rates are going up they're not yet doing that in canada and that's despite all the new tech the automatic emergency braking lane departure um, uh, warnings it's it's incredible that you would have introduced all of that and we're still going in the opposite direction part of that i mean if you look at ford f-150 as an example is a almost 1700 pound difference between the gas and the electric version that's a tremendous amount of additional energy that's going to just plow through whatever it hits
0: well that's i've been trying to send out the signal um for vulnerable road users cyclists and pedestrians especially and we're all pedestrians let's be straight um these vehicles will look like an f-150 that you're familiar with but it's going to weigh a third more basically and this is going to be the same even for smaller evs and i don't think that uh lesson or instruction is getting out there to other road users i buy I, I drive a little hatchback if one of these trucks plows into it with that extra momentum behind it i'm going to be dinged i mean there's no there's no way around it and i don't think um i guess this is when government instruction all this stuff has to be working together and i don't see this component being addressed and that makes me really cranky anyway talking about the size of these when you're in new York. Um, Heavy emphasis on electric vehicles, as you said, everyone's gone all in on electric. What happened to hybrids?
1: Our, well, the end point when all is, is done is going to be most likely a, a predominantly electric fleet. There may be some allowance for vehicles that run on other things, but governments have thrown kind of thrown it all in with that one solution. And uh, I think it's a much better solution than gasoline because the energy is used more efficiently. What what you have inside the vehicle in a gas engine, at the the best of times, about two thirds is being wasted. And in city driving really it could be three quarters of the energy because of stopping and starting, because idling and driving at low speeds is inefficient. With an electric vehicle, it's the opposite. It's as efficient or more efficient because there's no air resistance at lower speeds. So that's where we're going. But how we're getting there is in a somewhat expensive and wasteful way. And we would have liked to see a larger role for hybrids. Uh, To give you an example, a plug-in hybrid from Toyota, which is the maker who makes the best ones, will use a quarter of those environmentally sensitive battery metals of an electric car. And yet it will save about three quarters of the fuel consumption. of of a gasoline vehicle and so even though you have the redundancy of two systems um, you have optimization and a lot of car technology was built with that kind of legacy view power steering you know they still kept the steering column but they added power assist and now we've added lane keeping assist but you still have a wheel and a column same with brakes you know they started out as mechanical then they became hydraulic then they got vacuum assistance then they got electronic assistance now we have regenerative braking all these technologies were they didn't just get rid of what was there before they put it on top of because it's a conservative industry and it's very cost conscious and we we believe that the hybrid plug-in and even a non-hybrid plug-in has a a big place a big role to play the other benefit, by the way, they run on 110. You can charge a hybrid plug-in on the regular circuitry, which would give utilities, uh, you know, instead of having to uh, crash program to upgrade inside of 10 years, uh, they would have an, the option of having a more gradual phased-in.
0: You touched on um, the minerals and metals that are involved in the electric vehicles. It's a hot, hot, hot topic worldwide, especially with a lot of geopolitical influences, but um, Shifting it here with Biden's inflation fighting act, um, putting a lot of money to keep that within their borders. And there's a lot going on in Ontario, obviously, with regards to that. Why is, is any of this going to go to hybrid tech? Is any of this, you know, we need some of the same metals, but not nearly as many. I feel like we've like hopscotched over a really, really good answer to the next 10 years. My colleagues and I, most of us, we talk, we thought the hybrids would be like a bridge, a 10 year bridge or so. And it just feels like everywhere I look, it's all electric all the time and they're expensive and they use a lot of resources. You're you're saying hybrids offer up so much and it feels like they've been just tossed aside almost. I know actual people are trying to buy them. I know that they can't get hold of them. But do you, are, is anyone else, are they not going to bother working on hybrids anymore? I guess that's my question.
1: Well, clearly Ford... And General Motors have taken that position. you know, they're, they're, they're And they're big car makers. They made these dramatic statements and went for a full electric. I think right now, if you look at GM, what they're really selling is gasoline vehicles and they're selling quite well. Uh, the, their electric vehicle production is actually very low, but it's what's getting them a halo. And so they're milking it for what they can. But we would have liked to see hybrids. Uh, you wouldn't have had the weight penalty uh, in a collision the battery pack is so much smaller that it's very unlikely to get damaged. It's not like a Tesla when it gets t-boned, and there's much less. We believe in the long run less risk of fire as well. Uh, so there are there are benefits from it.
0: I saw a couple of days ago uh, in the U.S. they're trying to close apparently that SUV loophole. Remember that when um, all trucks basically they thought during Obama era trucks were used for people that needed trucks and the manufacturers exploited that fact and pushed a lot of passenger light trucks into that category. That's how we got all the SUVs and stuff. And now they're trying to close that off. I don't know if you've been reading about it. I'm sure you have, but they haven't addressed the weight differential for electrifying these vehicles. So even though it's about weight, it's not about electric weight. Are we always going to get patchwork, um, forward motion is it always going to be one step forward and two steps back when it comes to regulations
1: this one was overdue and there are no more cars left or very few it's 20 percent of the market so of new vehicles so uh, essentially when you're when you're regulating so-called trucks you're actually regulating people's personal vehicles and you do—you really probably should just harmonize and throw them all in together. That they they would have to meet the same, you know, that the average fuel economy uh, would be corrected, so that a car maker could would just include his cars and his trucks in the same mix and not be penalized, which they are currently. If they make cars, the cars have to meet a higher standard than the trucks. So um, that would be step one. Uh, I might add that we have a precedent for what's happening now, and that was in the nineteen seventies. And the air quality issues that had been known about since the fifties. So almost 20 years earlier, that were uh, related to use of the motor vehicle that the automakers had fought quite successfully for many years. Eventually the government clamped down with very tough rules. And as a consequence, uh, also when they brought them in the rules, they came in for the entire fleet in the year, instead of doing a phase in and saying maybe 10% of your fleet in 1973, maybe 30% in 1974 and, and so on. So that the car makers could switch over gradually. And as a consequence the vehicles ran pretty badly, they used more fuel, not less, they got heavier because of uh, bumper requirements. So I know it's considered a kind of a bad decade. I think this time around the industry is a lot more capable. We're not at the point where we're we're thinking that, oh, I want to buy one of the cars of yesteryear because today's are worse. Fortunately, it hasn't happened. Um, But uh, I I am concerned that once again, the regulation is a bit heavy handed. And uh, um, this time around, they are actually giving you a gift to make it easier to swallow. And last time around, when you were buying a new car in the 70s, the government wasn't telling you we're going to pay you you know, $2,000 toward your car. So we're almost, there's a different kind of thinking today. And I'm surprised because of course poverty is probably as big an issue now as it was, was back then. Certainly income distributions are less equal than they were 50 years ago. Poverty may be better. We may have alleviated it, all the level of all the ships has come up, but I I am concerned about the, the current programs that absolutely reward people at the, at the higher end of the scale.
0: Okay, we have to take a short break. I'll be back in just a minute. This is Lorraine Sommerfeld hosting the Driving Podcast with my guest today, George Georgini. We'll be right back. George, we, we're still talking about electrics because there's a lot to talk about. I'm told that the recycling of the, the, these batteries are massive. They're physically very, very big. And I'm reading that you can use them to power your camping setup or your cottage like they do have aftermarket stuff but basically we need to be able to break these down and have them recycled there's a toronto firm called Bicycle that's setting up globally from what i can understand and they're saying it will be a closed loop up to 95 percent um, of the material will make it w- make its way back into the system whole what do you have to say about the recycling as it currently sits with no federal regulations by the way in any country Well, the industry
1: is basically saying, trust us.
0: Oh, okay. No problem. That's always worked. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And uh, right now it's landfill or it's a problem when an EV is off the road because there isn't proper recycling for it. And I, by the way, do not believe for a minute that the current uh, minerals, the lithium, the cobalt, are going to be the identical ones going into batteries 15 years ago, which is the average life of it, 15 years from now. Which is the average life of a new vehicle? I think we will have evolved to maybe some of the same metals, some of the rarer, rarer metals, but um, I think uh, the, the main chemistry may well be very different, and there won't be a demand for all of, of the stuff that we have now. In addition, I am hoping that um, the concern about recycling will be such that it will become a reality. Uh, I'm skeptical about, although I know Tesla said a lot about this, uh, repurposing old batteries into power walls. Um, I'd like to believe it could happen, that they'll be able to sort the good ones from the bad ones, and that the li- older lithium ion chemistry, you know, when it's 15 years old, it may be unstable enough that you're not going to want it inside your house or around your house. So uh, I think those issues haven't really been fully answered.
0: I've seen some, there was a scary headline a few months ago in California where it was a Tesla, I'll pick on Tesla, they've got most of the road share for electric, so it's going to read that way no matter what, and it had been in a yard for a few weeks after a crash and it just started burning, and I think fire departments are having difficulty putting this stuff out because, as you said, it's a whole different technology, I don't know that we're ready for it, but... Also, insurance companies are writing off vehicles, electric vehicles, because they can't repair them properly. This, this can't keep being this way. We can't have disposable vehicles, especially the most expensive ones on the road. We can't just throw them out when they get a ding because nobody knows how to fix them. Where do you see this going? We
1: can have disposable vehicles, Lorraine.
0: <laughs> I should have known better. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: First of all, the vehicle owner is happy they get a brand new vehicle. So instead of a $20,000 repair, they're happy. But uh, the insurance companies um, were very short-sighted. The um, thing is they were relying on their experience with vehicles like the Prius that had been around for a long time uh, and the Leaf, which had been around for a little while, and their thinking was, these are very conservative people. These vehicles are not really involved a lot in collisions. Um, we have very good history with them. And the Prius, for one, had very low insurance premiums, even though theoretically it's more complex than a regular car because it has two power systems. should cost more to fix. The consequence was that when the cars like the Tesla came out, the Model S and then um, the Model 3, uh, they were given very low premium. They were put into low premium groups. And what the insurers are seeing now is, in fact, they're very expensive to insure and they are slowly catching up. We are going to get to a point where insurance premiums for Teslas and other brands with EVs, high-performance EVs are going to be more expensive than for the gas car. I'm, I'm certain of it, and it's really only because the insurance companies screwed up. Uh, you know, They also believe some of the hype around the autopilot and full self-driving, the, the claims that cars are never involved in a collision. Uh, what we've seen actually is shortly after you buy one, you really need to be careful. If you get into one of these high-powered electric vehicles, we, we have seen um, parking lot events, uh, th- you know, getting in and out of your driveway events. It, uh, in close quarters, people underestimate the power of the vehicle. And so they are actually involved in quite a few, what you would call, smaller collisions. They're extremely expensive to fix. And in Tesla's case, because there are no parts for collision repairs, because they delay the parts sometimes for months, the cost of the claim goes up because the insurer or the body shop is also contributing to your uh, courtesy vehicle, sometimes for months.
0: Yeah, we could have a whole whole topic on uh, autopilot, which the name just makes me, um, yeah, makes me flex a little bit. Um, we you just mentioned briefly about people doing service on these vehicles. This is a in Ontario and Canada, in the auto industry, the aftermarket and downstream um, equation is has always been robust. It's always been a very big part of this industry. Are we in the right place when it comes to service and aftermarket for the EVs? The sales are tipping up like crazy. Are we seeing the same happening with the aftermarket that's going to take care of these vehicles? Are techs ready for this? Are shops ready for this? Are Are we going to be there in time?
1: uh so tax and shops are not ready enough and for the time being most people are going to their new vehicle dealer on the premise that the dealer has been trained on it Um, apas believes in the aftermarket tremendously not only because um uh they're it's a less expensive solution in some cases but because it gets you around the hegemony of the manufacturer so we have cases where Changing a battery pack at an Nissan dealer is $12,000 on, on a five or six-year-old leaf. That's a common repair now. And eventually the, bad, bad, the aftermarket will have to develop a solution because it's, this is just too onerous. So we had a case recently where Tesla estimated $25,000 to replace a battery on a Model S that was out, outside of its eight-year warranty. And the customer was able to get someone in the aftermarket to do the repairs, for about five and a half thousand dollars so we need the aftermarket and we absolutely should welcome them coming into the ev sphere Uh, i think unfortunately the change in technology is going to force some people either out of the business or to just deal in fast moving stuff so things that they could easily do like the 12 volt battery or the brakes on your electric vehicle in the long run we're also going to see a change in the type of work evs less things that require routine maintenance when they get older. You won't be changing an alternator or a starter or an exhaust system because either they don't exist or they don't exist in the conventional sense that we understand, and they're a lifetime part. On the other hand, when they do break, we're seeing this already, they're way more expensive to repair, Um, and often right now there aren't cheaper fixes, so you're buying an expensive original equipment part.
0: I know most batteries, I think that the industry standards about eight years, um, warranty on the battery across most brands. What, what should people, if they're buying an EV, what would you be looking for warranty wise? What are the, the things to really be paying attention to? Cause usually with warranties, as you've taught me, you read what's not there, what's not covered rather than what is because that's the, best way to find out what your actual coverage is but with EVs as you said they're different you sent me a really cool photo from the auto show of you called it a skateboard <laughs> and you know the body being put on it so these are entirely different vehicles what should i be looking for if i what should EV buyers if it's the first time out what's the difference what kind of questions should they be asking
1: you're going to be spending a little bit less on regular maintenance as the vehicle gets older but your repairs will be more expensive and right now overall um, full evs are a more expensive vehicle to keep on the road than the best of the gasoline vehicles and that's perfectly normal with new technology it's just that it's a different kind of expense Um, in terms of hybrids until recently, Toyota had the dominant role in that market, and those are the, some of the most reliable cars around. The Toyota battery chemistry was an older chemistry, was a nickel metal hydride until recently. and That's proven to be very robust. Also, in a hybrid, when the batteries degrade, your fuel consumption goes up a bit, but your range stays the same. Your performance, from what you can notice, stays the same as well. So it has less of an impact when the batteries are off by 30 or 40%. On an EV, it's tricky. Absolutely. If you have one of the models that have had issues with battery uh, durability, like you know the, the Ford uh, Focus, the Nissan Leaf, um, it's, it's a real, it's a hardship for people because after that warranty is over, you're off and on your own. You know, the car is designed to last twice as long as the warranty on the batteries. That's what you would expect. And uh, some of those battery packs do actually drop off quite significantly as the vehicle gets older. For the most part, I think the manufacturers have the durability issue licked. And that, that is our hope going forward.
0: We talked about how much less it can cost to run an electric car day to day. Obviously, you're not filling it up at the gas station. But that also has an impact on taxes and a lot of fuel taxes go to transit and road repair and everything else. How are governments, and this is global, not just Canada, how are governments going to have to, they're going to have to come to some kind of moment where they go, okay, if, you know, 20% is now buying EVs, that's a lot of lost revenues. Where do you see governments making this up through infrastructure or tolling or something, but where do we go from here? We can't just, the money can't just disappear.
1: It's astonishing to me that there hasn't been more of a conversation around this Lorraine. We already know like literally each province has a backlog and it's measured sometimes in hundreds of millions. I I read in Quebec, it's in billions of dollars of uh, bridge and infrastructure maintenance to do. And uh, we're cutting taxes for road users by letting people switch to an EV that doesn't pay the same taxes as a gasoline vehicle. So if you wanted a level playing field, even if you were giving someone a $5,000 gift when they bought a car, you would have found a way or at least warned them and said, look, it's a honeymoon now, but we're getting to a point where we're going to have to charge you for using your vehicle about $1,000 a year, one way or the other. So my guess is it will be tolling. I'm disappointed because uh, tolling, you know, does involve knowing where your car is at a given time. It's a certain privacy issue. And we've also had the freedom and maybe the indulgence of being able to drive as much as we want without really paying based on how far we drive other than what we, we put in the way of energy. Another option would be to have your vehicle registration on an EV be paid monthly, say at, a, at the rate of $100 a month, which would be correct, or $75 a month. An automatic deduction to maintain your registration my concern is governments will let this conversation not happen for so long that by the time they have to the ev buyer will think they're entitled to drive for free and the government won't have the guts to come back to them so then in that case they'll increase the taxes on gasoline or on all vehicles which will make gasoline vehicles less advantageous since they're already paying a much higher burden in tax for their energy, and that will affect owners of older vehicles because, of course, in 2035, the people who are still driving gasoline vehicles will probably be the people who were the second and third owners.
0: And that's why I always thought hybrids would be a really nice bridge in there, but no one listened to me. Um, no, Toyota uh,
1: listened to you. Toyota listened, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: and, I listened to you. unfortunately, they can't produce enough cars because yeah. otherwise, they, they right now, the public would have been open. So the I public so. would have listened to Green, what they're telling us is they would happily buy a toyota sienna that's a hybrid uh and with you know seven liters per 100k fuel consumption for a big vehicle like that uh people are very comfortable with that and they understand what the point is of it but um unfortunately toyota's production is, is a mess the other people who have hybrids are hyundai and kia they're a bit extraordinary range of powertrains. Uh, um you know, plug in, non plug in electric, and just pure gas, sometimes the same model, which is uh, really ex- quite something to, to behold. The jury is out as to whether you would get the same fuel consumption savings with all of their hybrids as you might on a Toyota today, or on a Honda, which, as well, their newest vehicle, the CRV, is a- available as a hybrid and also quite economical that way.
0: Speaking of conversations that governments don't want to have, um, the weight of these EVs. Because unlike Europe, we've gone massive with SUVs and pickup trucks and everything else. They're going to be they're going to be taking a roll uh, a toll on our roads and our bridges and infrastructure. I believe a parking garage part of one collapsed, not the one that was in the paper a couple of days ago, but a couple of weeks ago. And the weight of these things, we're all EV owners know that they they have to buy more expensive tires and they go through them more quickly, but weight's a thing it's putting a lot of stress on this infrastructure that now there's less gas taxes to be fixing but nobody wants to have that conversation if all these vehicles are weighing a thousand pounds or more extra than their counterparts when do we have that talk who's going to have it who's leading well
1: this? it was the talk occurred to a lesser degree in the early 2000s when vehicles like the suburban and uh, crew and family cab pickup trucks came on the market they, they pointed out some people did the calculation of the loads on and certainly older bridges during rush hour if the, the traffic were stopped and it was all lined up with those big vehicles you were exceeding or reaching the design limit for some of those bridges the calculations that the engineers had done so the conversation happened and then it died and we just you know kicked the can down the road so I suspect the same thing will happen here and also the other thing that we've learned is that people who build the roads and bridges and the people who build the cars never talk to one another. They talk past one another. The guardrails are the wrong height on many roads. They were too low. They actually can, in many cases, flip an SUV. It's better now because the SUV designs have improved. But there was a period of more than 15 or 20 years where um, there was a mismatch between the physical environment and the road and, and the vehicle that was on it. And I think that will, will continue now. As far as weights are concerned.
0: You know, I, I grew up waiting to for the adults to take charge and do the right thing and now I'm an adult and I don't see any other adults in the room. I the fact none of these people talk to each other, every level of government is a disconnect from the next one. And this is right across. The us and canada this is not just you know slamming my local favorite politician as usual but it has to work in conjunction how can we be so stupid we make these spectacular vehicles and yet we can't get every level of government to come in on the same call um i want to ask you this is kind of general you can talk about anything you want right here um looking back you've been doing this a long time what have we got right and what have we got wrong in this industry
1: local air quality so in your city So smog, uh, stuff that um, would shorten your life as an individual from breathing, so uh, soot, um, uh, carbon monoxide, lead in your gasoline, the results have been phenomenal. Uh, The science that taught us that all of these things were bad was pretty well established by the early to middle 1950s. And uh, it took us until probably the 1990s 1980s and 90s to see measurable improvements in air quality in places where a lot of cars were driven and those continued into the 2000s in north america even as the air quality in european cities got worse because the government's there favorite diesel and the car makers cheated so that was a really big success the missed opportunity was that the same science and it wasn't it was quite controversial the car makers argued that uh, that orange stuff you see in the sky at the end of the day up up in the atmosphere could not come from a car tailpipe which is a different color and is far removed at that that's ground level that exhaust gas was kind of clean and so it took it took a big deal to get that kind of thinking but the the argument the conversation with the oil companies never really happened in the same way so they also knew around that same period, that global warming was a possibility because of increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. So we missed five decades of looking for a solution to that. And now we're where the tailpipe emissions people were roughly in 1968 or 1970. That's where we're at, 1972, making a transition in a hurry in an inefficient way. I am confident knowing how good the gasoline fueled vehicles got toward the end that uh we could do the same in the end the end point for electrification will be that we will resolve it and maybe we will be mostly carbon neutral not 100 percent but we'll be much further along the way than today whether we should be carbon neutral driving a two-ton vehicle with one person inside (laughs) is another story right i mean and if it's less to drive a vehicle by the way the Uh, and the vehicle has a form of self-driving, even if it's not fully self-driving, if you're able to do your emails, for example, in it, then what is very likely to happen is commutes will get longer because the thing costs less to drive. So we're not going to solve issues like congestion or roadway design with this. And that also is a missed opportunity. I mean, it costs in Quebec $12,000 for one new car, electric car, to be on the road. Uh, if you were to give somebody a bus pass for a year, people would say that's extravagant if you gave them a free pass for transit. But it would cost a lot less than that.
0: There's a lot of places in the US and in Europe who are giving people credits for e-bikes. Because if you can't, if you don't have enough puff for pedal power, I get it. But oregon and minnesota there's a lot of places who the same way we give rebates for electric cars they're doing it for e-bikes and people are loving it because they can get onto a bike and you know they cost more than a normal bike and up here i wrote about that a few weeks ago and people go ah it's just ridiculous right because there's a real hardcore hate that happens for anything that suggests that you might get out of your car and walk or ride a bike but when you say you know you look at the changes we made in the, fa- in the past, you know, bringing, getting the emissions down, going forward, we should be able to bring that, you know, all the way down. What worries you about going forward? What are, what's an opportunity you think we might, that's sitting there that we're missing? A rethink
1: on, on getting people around without four empty seats at rush hour. It doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I love the freedom, the mobility that you get with a vehicle. But I think if we are continued to be wasteful, we're going to get to a point where people will say you can't afford it in the city because there's no space. So you don't need to build any more parking because we don't want more cars downtown. And uh, we want to tax them very more heavily for the parking spots they have for other reasons. In other words, you'll end up soiling your own nest so badly that a car ownership will not only be an indulgence, but it will become something that is sort of punished. And it, it's, it would be nice to do a, a proper full rethink i wish the twelve thousand dollars per vehicle purchase were available in a pot to be used where it would do the most good rather than helping a person who can afford a sixty five thousand dollar car buy it for fifty two thousand or whatever buy it for fifty three thousand dollars because that's what we're, where we're at now that should only ever have been a very short-term thing and it's not really a solution it's just one way to kickstart a transition
0: And it's just remained in place for years and years and years. it,
1: it, It will most likely. And also it needs to be studied against what else you can do. If the car makers are already producing as many electric vehicles as they can, which is what they're saying. And what people buying them tell us, then lowering or removing rebates or having one national rebate isn't going to put fewer electric cars on the road. You can't make more. Therefore, um, your the the rebate is actually not having a, the incremental input impact you you wanted it to have
0: okay any i've made you take us all the way around all the way around the industry this time um from a behind the scenes look i'm gonna have you back when we talk and tell consumers what they should buy how they should buy it what to look out for that's a whole nother whole nother show so we're going to split this into two but you've been awesome today i want to thank you for your time I want to thank George he's with the Automobile Protection Association. You can subscribe to our show, the driving podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Please be sure to check out for past episodes. This is Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll see you next time. Thank you.
1: My pleasure.